0: Life Audio. If every human being is the image of God, then every human being possesses inherent dignity and worth, and their life is valuable. Their life is sacred and should be protected.
1: I'm Jody Nisnik, and you're listening to So Much More. And after a quick word from our sponsors, my guest Carmen Imes and I will be back to talk about being God's image. Carmen Joy Imes is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University. She is a graduate of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and she is the author of Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, editor of Praying the Psalms with Augustine and Friends, and her newest book, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. IMS is a regular contributor to The Well, a fellow of every voice, and serves on the advisory council for the Bible Literacy Conference. She is a member of the Evangelical Theological Society and the Society of Biblical Literature, and she serves on the board of directors of the Institute for Biblical Research. She and her husband, Daniel, have three children. And they like camping, hiking, and playing pickleball. I just feel like we need to be friends, Carmen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's so fun to hear
1: all the things that you love just so align with my heart and what I love. So Mm -hmm. thanks for being here. Thank you for making some space to be with us.
0: Yeah, thank you for making space to have me. This is Mm -hmm. a treat.
1: Well, you seek to answer a pretty big question in your book, Being God's Image, about what it means to... Be God's image, what it means to be human, really. Mm -hmm. So, I want to talk first about this nuance that you're hitting on because we hear a lot that we bear God's image, but you're actually saying, no, we are actually being the image of God. So, Mm -hmm. let's just start there. Tell us a little bit about that as a jumping off point.
0: Yeah, it's really common for people to either say we bear the image or to use image as a verb. They say we image God. And I'm very deliberate in the book about talking about us as the image. We are the image of God. It's not something we carry and it's not something we do. And the reason I think that's so important is because as I closely read the biblical texts that talk about this topic, I have become convinced that the image of God is not something that we can lose. It's not something that we can have in varying amounts. There's no sliding scale of imageness, Mm -hmm. how much we're like or unlike God. The the image is something that is true of every human being, and it can't be lost. And so I think if we talk about bearing the image, we miss that sense that this is actually our identity. It's not something that's extra added on top.
1: Yeah, I love that. And we're going to talk a lot about the implications of that but before we get to that i want to talk about the passage that we meditated on because i think it's very foundational mm-hmm. to everything that that we're going to talk about and that is right at the beginning in genesis 1 26 through 28 and so mm-hmm. i want to read the passage to us and i'd love for you to just point out some things that you think are worth us noticing in this passage and even mm-hmm. as you were meditating on it recently What did the Lord stir in you that was fresh and new, which I just love this about God's word, Mm -hmm. because I know that you have spent hours pouring over this and you just Mm -hmm. told me before we got on and yet God still made it come alive for you. So I'm excited to hear that as well. So let me read the passage for us real quick. It says this, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So Carmen, tell us a little bit about this passage.
0: Yeah, so this is, of course, the crowning moment of God's creative work in Genesis 1, where he's bringing order to all creation. And if you read Genesis 1 carefully, you'll see, you'll notice, I mean, I had read Genesis 1 how many times in my life before I noticed this. So maybe you haven't noticed this before, but there's this, a set of panels where we have three days where God's making spaces, and then three days where God's filling those spaces. And I hadn't noticed this before seminary, that on the first day, God makes light and dark, which are domains basically, but he doesn't populate them with sun, moon, and stars until day four. Mm
2: -hmm. So day
0: four completes day one. And then day two is the creation of sky and water. There's a, a space. He opens up space so that there's waters above and waters below and there's air in between and the birds fly in the air and the fish swim in the sea, but that doesn't happen till day five. So he makes the space on day two, fills it on day five. And then on day three, he makes dry land. And on day six, he populates the dry land first with animals and then with humans. So we picked it up in verse 26, which is right where God makes humans. And what stood out to me last night as I was meditating on this passage is the word then, Mm. at the beginning, then God said, Let us make mankind as our image. And I think what hit me in a new, in a fresh way is that God had already done all this preparatory work to bring order. He didn't bring us into a mess. He didn't bring us into chaos or into conflict. He didn't create humans to come do the dirty work. He actually created space for us to flourish and then invited us into it, into Mm -hmm. a, a world that was already ordered and already good. And then he says that humans are going to rule over the fish and the birds and the livestock and the wild animals. But what struck me yesterday is it's the fish in the sea. So that's day two and day five. Day The birds in the sky, day two and day five. The livestock and wild animals and creatures that move along the ground. So there's day three and day six. You can hear... The domain or the area and the residents being evoked as he speaks, everything is where it's supposed to be. Mm. And maybe this stood out to me because I'm writing a commentary on Exodus right now and I'm in the 10 plagues, which I'm calling the 12 signs and wonders, but that's a topic for another day <laughs> <laughs> because why be normal? Um, and, and what I've noticed so much there is that it's a disruption of order. That creation gets disrupted by frogs coming up from the water onto the land and into their houses and by locusts eating all of the vegetation. And it becomes a destructive environment where the animals and insects are not where they're supposed to be. They overtake. Mm -hmm. And so reading Genesis one again, in light of that, just it, it just jumped off the page at me that God makes order and this, there's this peaceful and productive environment and then humans become part of it. And uh, something that really came to the surface as I was working on the book is that God makes humans, and I would translate it as our image rather than in our image. And I explain why grammatically in the book, but humans are the image of God. And the implication of that is that they will rule over creation, but there's no indication that they will rule over each other. It just seems really clear to me that the humans are not told to dominate any other humans. They're told to together, partner together to do this work of ruling over animals and over the created world. And that's just, to me, that's beautiful and it's thought-provoking and there's all sorts of ways that our world is not in alignment with that.
1: Yes, there are all kinds of ways that we are not in alignment with that. I mean, and that's sin. Even as you were Mm -hmm. talking about the plagues in Exodus, I kept thinking this is the disruption that sin yes. brings into the world, and everything yes. just gets yeah. thrown on its head in, in many and, ways. And
0: yes, and the particular sin that's disrupting things in Egypt is Pharaoh's domination over other humans, his right. exploitation of humans. So he's trying to get something out of them for himself instead of partnering together to maintain order. And it's that that God says, absolutely not. This mm. has to stop. And so he hears the outcry of the Hebrews who are being oppressed, and he takes action. And then later he tells the Hebrews when they get to Sinai, he tells them, if you oppress someone and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. That's in Exodus twenty-two twenty-two. It's such a beautiful passage.
1: That is amazing. Oh, Okay, I'm going to have to go back and read that. We're going to pause here for a quick break, and then we'll be right back.
2: What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now, 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states.
1: I want to come back to some of the implications of what Mm -hmm. it means now for us to be God's image. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about the created order between people that we just started talking about. And Mm -hmm. what does that mean then as being God's image, the implications for our relationships with other
0: humans? Yeah. If every human being is the image of God, then every human being possesses inherent dignity and worth and their life is valuable. Their life is sacred and should be protected. We see this really clearly after the flood So sometimes people will say, oh, yes, every human being was the image of God, but then at the fall, that was lost or damaged in some way. And when I read Genesis 9, I don't see any theological space for that view because after the fall, after the flood, God says to Noah, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. He sets up a system of checks and balances or accountability for murder And the reason he gives is, for in the image of God has God made mankind. Mm. So the reason we're not supposed to take the life of other humans is because they are the image of God, every human being. So from the outset, there's a huge value placed on human life, and that that's grounded in the image. But then if we go back to chapter 1, verse 27, what's also really beautiful to me is that the author makes it very clear that men and women are made as God's image. What we don't see is, well, men are the image of God, and then women are along for the ride, or they're derivative in some way, or in some sense, inferior. And you can find lots of people throughout church history that have talked about women as derivative or or inferior, theologians who have said this. And I think they're not taking seriously Genesis one twenty seven, where men and women side by side are created as God's image. And one of the reasons
1: that you talk about is the fact that scripture was written to an ancient people in an ancient, ancient language, in an ancient mm-hmm. culture, that it was not written directly to you and I, Carmen, or right. anyone right. listening. It is for us and it does inform so much, but we have to first shed our cultural lens and Mm -hmm. and try to understand it in the original space. Tell us a little bit about how you read these two creation accounts Mm -hmm. and how they can inform us as what you're saying, that we are created as co-heirs, co-regents,
0: Yeah. So Genesis 2, for someone who's reading it right after Genesis 1, can be a little confusing because we've just had the creation of the world and everything's ordered and humans are created. And then in Genesis 2, all we have is a man and he's he's alone and it's not good. (laughs) So that's like, well, where's woman? I thought she was already created in chapter one. So we could make a whole list of disconnects between chapter one and chapter two. We already have green plants, on in chapter two, but we don't have a human yet. And plants are supposed to happen, like the the order of operations is different in chapter two. And it implies that a long amount of time had passed, that there are rivers that are watering the garden, but nobody's taking care of it. Which doesn't sound like just a couple of hours have passed. It sounds like there's, a, there's some time that's passed. So clearly chapter two is a different angle on creation, a different purpose for writing the story. And they are different genres. Chapter one reads almost like poetry, not quite like poetry, but it has this funky indentation, not like normal paragraphs in a story. And it has a very rhythmic feel to it. And so when you put them side by side, it's worth asking the question, what are these trying to do? What are they trying to convey? I don't believe that they contradict each other, but they have different purposes. And so in chapter two, we have a kind of slowed down, zoomed in account of the creation of humanity. And God does make the man first in this story. And many people base their doctrine of gender relations on the fact that Adam comes first. But the text makes very clear that Adam by himself is not enough, that there's something lacking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm. with the creation of just the man. And I think what's interesting is God has given him a job to do. He's supposed to work the garden and take care of it in verse 15. And then he says, you can eat from all these trees, but not from that one tree. And it's at that point that he says, it's not good for you to be alone. So all of the things in chapter one have been good. Every time God creates something, it's good. And then he creates humans and it's very good. So this is the first place in the Bible where we find something not good. And his solitary state is not good because we need collaboration and accountability and partnership to carry out the work God's given us. We already know from chapter one that men and women are asked to rule over creation So we already know, we already come into chapter two knowing that there's not a hierarchy, there's a partnership. And the partnership is broken in chapter two because we only have a man. And so God makes the woman and brings her to the man after he parades all the animals in front of Adam. And I'm saying Adam, but the text actually doesn't use their names until chapter three. It's just the man and the woman. It's confusing because the Hebrew word for human is Adam. So you have to look at context to see whether this is Adam's name or whether it's saying the human. And so in any case, God makes the woman and he does it as a response to this. Not, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And that sentence has become important to me because as I've looked at the Hebrew, I've I've become convinced that the word helper is not the best translation of what's happening. So the Hebrew word for, that's translated helper is Azer, and it's used almost a hundred times in the Old Testament, both as a noun and a verb. And if you go and look up every passage, which I've done, and look at the context and say who is the Azer e- and what are they doing? It's striking that not a single time is that word or the noun or the verb used to describe what someone does for a superior. It's never what an employee does for an employer, what a servant does for a master. Half of the time, it's about Yahweh, describes what Yahweh does for Israel. He is their azer or he azers them. You certainly couldn't argue that Yahweh is inferior in any way or subservient, right. (laughs) right? Quite the opposite. And the other half of the time, it's used in military context to talk about what an ally does. If you're in battle and you need help, you call for an ally and your ally is your azer or they azer you. And so to me, it seems clear from the language God uses that he's, he's showing Adam that what Adam needs is a woman who is similar to him, a compatriot, a companion who can come along and be his ally in carrying out the work he's been given to do in verse 15. And so he, he resolves that by, by making a woman out of his own body, out of his side. And so that shows their essential similarity not an essential hierarchy. And I think there's lots more in the Bible that that talks about gender and gender roles. But if we want to get a solid foundation, we need to start in Genesis before the fall so that we can see God's vision for how it's supposed to be.
1: Yeah. Thank you for unpacking that word. Azer has been a really important word for me as well. And I've mm done some of that word study, and I just am so grateful that you brought that up. One of the things that you did, and I loved, this was a new thought for me, you say after Jesus is resurrected, he appears to women and all four of the gospels tell mm-hmm. us he appears to a woman first. Yes. And I love how you looked at that and thought through why might that be significant. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. So all, as you said, all four gospels have Jesus appearing to women first. Uh, they all talk about it. So it must be important. And John's gospel in John chapter 20, we get more detail of their encounter. And since Easter is not so far behind us now, probably these passages are familiar to people. Um, Mary is Mary Magdalene is in the garden where the tomb is. And when he addresses her, he calls her woman. And I don't think that's random. It's not because he doesn't know her name because we he calls her Mary in a, a couple of verses later, but he first calls her woman. And I just think the Bible clearly presents Jesus as a new Adam. He's being the ultimate human. He's showing us how we should be as humans who are the image of God. And and so we think of Jesus as the new Adam, but if there, if he's the new Adam, where's Eve? And his very first appearance is in a garden to a woman who is there when everyone else has left. And she's showing her, her sense of connection, her piety, as she mourns, as she's crying at the tomb. And she's she's crying over his dead body. She's crying because they've taken... The body away, and she doesn't know how to make sense of it. She's She loves him so much that even his body in her mind needs to be honored. And so, he speaks to her, and she thinks he's the gardener, which is, again, such a beautiful thing because he is the gardener. He is the <laughs> one who planted the Garden of Eden and put the first man and the first woman in the garden. And he calls her by name and he commissions her to go tell the brothers, to go tell his other disciples that he is alive. And she runs and says, I have seen the Lord. And so we have a, we have a failure in the first partnership at, in Eden, where Eve, who's supposed to be a partner to Adam in carrying out God's work, fails to guard the garden from intrusion and listens to the voice of the serpent. And God could have said, all right, that's it. Women have had their chance. No more women need to be like, we don't want any more women part of this because they're going to mess things up. But in the garden, he says, I've put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the serpent. Um, and that hostility I've come to f- to think of as a really positive thing. Hmm. Eve should have had more enmity, more hostility before when when the serpent mm. comes to her and and suggests that maybe God's holding out on her, that yeah. maybe he's maybe he's holding back and not giving her what would really be good for her. She it was her job to care for the garden and to guard it. That second word in Genesis 215 is the word shamar, which means to guard or keep. And she and Adam are supposed to be guarding the garden and they fail to do that. The serpent comes in, he casts doubt on God, on God's goodness, and she buys it. She's deceived. And God, when she recognizes that she's been deceived and that she sinned and acknowledges that, God says, I've put enmity between you and the woman. Her seed will crush your head and you will strike his heel, right? That famous statement is actually setting the trajectory for what is going to redeem them from this situation. And it's through the woman, it's the woman's seed who's going to usher in redemption and so now we're in the garden in john 20 with the seed of the woman this man jesus who is born of only a woman actually there was no man involved in her in her conception he's the seed of the woman he's in the garden and he turns to mary and calls her woman and commissions her to participate in spreading the most important message in human history. And so to me, it's like a divine redemptive moment, not just one person being redeemed, but the whole project of male and female partnership is being set back on track.
1: So beautiful. Thank you for unpacking that for us and helping us see that beautiful thread that Mm. goes through scripture. Mm -hmm. There's so many implications to what it means for us to be God's image, not just male and female, but it it has implications for how we view other people based on disability and race and all of these different ways that we have created division and, you know, kind of stratus of humans. We've done what Pharaoh is doing in a lot of ways, subjugate people we don't care for them well. And even people we don't like, they are still
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) the image of God. And that that has implications for how we live. Yeah. You know, one thing that hit me after, I think after the book was finished, was this famous philosophical statement by Rene Descartes. And I'm not a philosophy guru, but everyone's heard this line, I think, therefore I am. And I've just been thinking about how unbiblical that statement is how how contrary it is to the biblical teaching on what it means to be human. We are not human because of our rational capacity or because of our rational achievements. Thinking does not make us more and more human. Like the fact that I have a gajillion books behind me on this call does not make me more human than someone who can't read. Mm. And so I think the Bible gives a clear call that every human being is the image of God. If you have a body- if you're embodied then you're the image of god regardless of your capacities and if if we ground humanity and human dignity in being able to think then we all of a sudden have a sliding scale again of who's more human than than others and i've been thinking a lot about the ways that that perspective has leaked into the church and has permeated our culture where we have these stratas of, of human beings, some of whom are worth our time, some of whom are worth cleaning up their neighborhoods or making sure there's no messy mining project nearby or like, where do we put our garbage dumps? And who do we allow to live near them? Who's, whose interests are we protecting? And so I'm convinced that you know you can be in a coma, you could be in chronic pain, unable to get out of bed and you have every bit as much dignity as any other human being. And so the implications then for disability or for chronic illness or for the unborn or those nearing the end of life are really profound. Because as soon as you take human personhood and disconnect it from cognitive processes, then a child who's not born yet, actually possesses full human dignity. And someone with severe dementia in their later years of life still is worth protecting because they're still fully human. They're, as long as they're embodied, they're worth our time and attention. And so that, that to me is profound. It's a different way of getting at these conversations that we have about ethical dilemmas in our generation.
1: Yeah, that's it does help us lift our head and and think about it a little differently. Yeah. One of the things you even just kind of started to touch on it a moment ago about where do we put our our garbage dumps? If we take seriously that we are God's image, that also impacts how we care for Creation, which is the first vocation and purpose and calling that He gave to us, was to tend to creation.
0: So let's talk a little bit about what is it. What are the implications for that? Yeah, I mean, creation care is wired in as part of our human vocation, as you said. I don't think it's the sum total of our human vocation, but it's there as the very first thing God tells humans that they must do as a consequence of being His image. And I don't know about you, Jody, but I grew up in a church context where creation care is not how we talked about it. We called it environmentalism, and it was those crazy leftists who were into saving the earth, and we didn't care about that because we believed it was all going to burn and we were going to be caught up to heaven, and so it didn't really matter what people did with the planet." And the more time I spent tracing this theme through the Bible, the more convinced I became that creation still matters, that we not only are we stewards of creation now, but God's plan, his intention is to renew the earth. This is the place we are now is our destiny. We are not going to be floating around on the clouds playing harps. We'll be on terra firma. Um, There are passages in the New Testament that talk about God's judgment that people have taken to, they've understood those as destructive, like God's going to destroy the earth with fire and give us a completely new planet. And if that was the case, then maybe we wouldn't need to take such good care of it. I'm convinced by Richard Middleton's work on a new heaven and a new earth that when Peter talks about destroying the elements with fire, he's not talking about destroying the planet itself, but, but the way a silversmith puts silver through the fire, what gets burned up is all of the stuff that shouldn't be there. And so God's fire becomes a purifying fire. It gets rid of all of the things that shouldn't be here so that the, the earth can be renewed in the way that God intended. If our destiny was some kind of disembodied future in the clouds, then Jesus would not have had to physically rise again, but Mm -hmm. he does. He comes in as an embodied human and his Mm -hmm. body rises again, and he still has scars on his resurrected body. There's continuity between his his new self and his old self. It's the same Jesus. And so that I think is really instructive about our future. If you were Thinking, you know, though if those listening were thinking, I can't wait for Jesus to come again because I'm going to get a new body, right? Like I can get rid of this body that I don't like. I don't see that being the case. God will wipe every tear from our eye. There will be no more sorrow, no more pain. So there will be a kind of healing and renewal that happens, but we'll still be embodied and we'll still be on earth. Mm. And, and that's really, um, captured my attention as I worked on this project.
1: Yeah. I love how you unpacked that. And even noticing that one of the things that we don't think about is Jesus is still embodied in heaven. Mm -hmm. He is still wrapped in a body. Yep. And so
0: that's how important it is. Like, it's not going away. It's not temporary. Yeah. It's not temporary for him. So it's not temporary for us. And I think we've we've uncritically adopted a kind of gnostic way of thinking about the world mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. matter is bad and spirit is good, and we are spirit and and our matter, our body is incidental, and that perspective is showing itself in really fascinating ways today as people think about gender and sexuality, right? Who is the real you, and people will talk about like in their minds or in their hearts that's what they are. And defining themselves by how they think rather than by the body that they have. And and I think this, if we take seriously the embodiment of humanity in Genesis 1, that contributes towards that conversation and the ways we can think about sexuality.
1: Yeah, there's just so many implications. And we didn't even talk about how Jesus is the perfect human and Mm -hmm. models that for us. We didn't get to talk about how Mm -hmm. this really impacts our relationship with God and so I really want to encourage everybody, you need to read this book. It just, it's so, so, so good. Carmen, do you have any closing words of encouragement for us as we're seeking to live out being God's image?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, these days I'm excited because the book is coming out and I've been hanging out on Amazon watching the stats, the sales stats and pre-sales because it's Entertaining right now. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed one thing I've really noticed is that there are kind of two kinds of books about humans. One, one kind of book is busy telling people you are a sinner in need of grace. Mm -hmm. And the other kind of book is saying you are the image of God and God created you good. And it's true that we're sinners in need of grace. But I think it's worth asking the question, where should we center our human identity? And I would center it in Genesis 1 and 2, not in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 shows us what breaks, what's broken, that God is in the process of redeeming. But we can't start in Genesis 3. We have to start in Genesis 1. And so if you are someone who has grown up in the church or maybe just overheard Christians talking about what humans are like, and you've only heard negative messages, You know, you're deceived. You're, you're a sinner. You're, there's nothing that good that could come from you. Then I would just encourage you to go back and read Genesis one and two again and just sink yourself into this beautiful, good world that God made Mm -hmm. and lean into that identity, that God given identity, because God is making all things new. And Christ is reversing the curse of Genesis three and bringing us to the place where we can fully live out our true identity as God's image.
1: Mm. Yeah. And what a gift that we get to participate in yeah. this beautiful work that Jesus is reversing that we or has yes. reversed and yes, we get could be a part of it. And so, yeah,
0: I mean, Jesus could have gone to tell the male disciples himself that he was alive and he didn't. He commissions Mary and what i yeah. what i notice about that story then is that mary becomes the model disciple she's not just a model for women but for all disciples that we have we didn't see the resurrection for ourselves but we've encountered the risen lord and so we have to go tell what we've seen mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. so we're invited into this bigger story and we're given a role to play just mm-hmm. so cool mm-hmm.
1: yeah friends if you are interested in learning more about some of that stuff too I had a conversation with Nijay Gupta, which is Mm. uh, a few weeks before this one. So I'll put a link in the show notes. You can go listen to that. Um, He's done some outstanding work on just seeing and telling the story of women throughout scripture. So Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to go a little deeper on that, that'll be there. Well, Carmen, goodness, thank you so much for this conversation. It just was, it's been so life-giving for me and I Mm. hope, I imagine for everyone. So thank
0: you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, friends, I'm going to put links in the show notes for how you can find Carmen, her blog, her book. And I am delighted to tell you that IVP, her publisher, is offering us 30% off and free shipping. So there's a code and a link in the show notes. You definitely want to take advantage of that. It's only for the next two weeks. I do, before we close, want to say a quick thank you to the team of Life Audio for their partnership. If you go to lifeaudio.com. You'll find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network, shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and even this one on scripture meditation and thoughtful conversations. And as always, I want to thank you again for joining Carmen and I today on So Much More, because we really do believe Jesus has so much more to say to us, and we are creating space to listen.